This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Open for Business is powered by Bosbole.com, Malaysia's first online company secretary. BFM 89.9, good morning and welcome to Open for Business, the show that dives into the journeys and ventures of entrepreneurs and business leaders. This morning on the show, Azran Osman Rani, the CEO and co-founder of Naluri. Within the rapidly evolving landscape of the modern workplace, the saying prevention is better than cure carries significant weight. While companies readily invest in medical insurance for their employees, there is a vital aspect of healthcare that is often overlooked. That's mental well-being. Recognizing the dire need for an integral connection between mental and physical health, Nanori is a company providing digital care solutions to provide support for physical and mental health, with employee wellness a key focus. Founded in 2017, Nanori specializes in the behavioral aspect, collecting data to tailor workplace programs that address the unique need of each individual. Nanori says it takes a proactive and preventive approach aimed at fortifying overall employee wellness in the hopes that this will lead to cost savings and reduced absenteeism, which will help productivity. Today, you will learn what took this former corporate C-suite into the startup ecosystem and then his own venture, as well as why the focus on employee wellness and digital health and what the ambitions ahead look like for Nalari. Azran, welcome to Open for Business. Good to speak to you again. Thank you for having me, Roshan. Obviously, a different tone today. The last time we spoke was on the grill. Uh, much more focused. Today, I want to explore the journey. Sure. And your journey has been an interesting one. Before Nullary, you were in management consulting, you were in Bursa, you were in Astro, mm-hmm. before taking on the role as CEO at AsiaX. And that was almost eight years of your life there. You then had two years with the iFlix leadership team, mm-hmm. uh, both as group COO and the Malaysian CEO. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, that's about 20 years of your life before Nullary. Yes. Talk to us about that journey, right? That that transition from the more corporate C-suite role yes. to startup founder and entrepreneur. Sure. Well, you know, I'd say the first 12 years in a very typical corporate role, but also very focused on business development transformation, right? So really changing businesses. And AirAsia X probably gave me that first opportunity to build something from scratch, mm. a blank sheet of paper, a PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> and not only that, right? Tony Fernandez basically said, look, I don't want you as an employee. You've also got to be an investor and a shareholder so that our interests are aligned, right? And so you got to put in real money. I don't believe in share options because you only have the upside without the downside. And if, you know, how much money are you going to put into this? Not enough. We're going to actually get personal financial uh, loans so Mm -hmm. that you take a big enough stake. So you really are very aligned with investors. And that, you know, really changes your mindset, right? Because you're building something from scratch and you're betting your retirement, your kids' education on this venture. That was essentially uh, a beta test for building your own company because you, you had you had stakes at the table, you had capital, yeah. and not only that, you took leverage to yes, fund that capital. Exactly. Um, what gave you the confidence to do that? Uh, because hearing that, I am getting stressed out. You know. <laughs> now, now you know why I don't have any hair left. Right? I pulled it all out of frustration. But one of the very interesting common themes across AirAsia X, iFlix, and now Naluri is if you're trying to do this yourself, it's incredibly scary and daunting, Mm. but doing it with the right team. So my co-founders have been people with deep industry experience. I built AirAsia X with Moses Devanayagam, who had 36 years of airline industry experience. We built iFlix with Mark Britt, who had 
built internet television in Australia. And so when I started Nalluri, I wanted someone who really understood healthcare. Mm-hmm. And that's how I got connected with Dr. Jeremy Ting, a healthcare system specialist, medical doctor himself, and of course now Dr. Tiffany Ong, a PhD in psychology. Yeah, I actually had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Tiffany last year. I think it was World Mental Health uh, Day. Mm. And the focus then was on the digital nature of yes. mental well-being. Uh, and if anyone wants to check out that podcast, just look up uh, Naluri mm-hmm. on the BFM website. And you should be able to find that one. Um, uh, this this key thing, I think, through your career has been, outside the consulting, has been this business transformation mm. and business development role. Do you still see that as your what you bring to the table today? Yeah, definitely. Because um, one of the very first things is venture, right? Because you're trying to attract a specific class of capital mm. that's very growth focused, right? And so you've got to be able to establish a big enough serviceable and addressable market, right? So you've got to be able to bring stakeholders, whether it's clients, business partners, channel partners, opening up new markets. And that's been a big focus for me personally, right, is kind of both charting that course and then navigating the complexities of high-speed growth. Talk to us a little bit about how, you know, your your background in, yes, a big part of that mm. is the business development transformation, but across various industries, how mm. did that inform or help you uh, build Nullery? So the other commonality besides knowing that you need the right team is across, there might seem like different industries, airline, internet, television, now healthcare. But the common thread for me is how do we make services much more affordable and accessible to emerging markets consumers, Ah. right? And so when I look at a lens, I try to understand how is the way services are delivered today, how can we do it? 10 times cheaper? How can we do it in a much more accessible and convenient manner? And when you apply that same model to healthcare today, what I would call, say, healthcare 1.0, which are physical hospitals and clinics, or even healthcare 2.0, the telehealth and telemedicine marketplace models, there's still some structural issues that present some unique opportunities to reimagine what would healthcare 3.0 look like? Now, the common denominator here, um, how can we do it cheaper, mm. is something that also, I guess, resonates with that the way you have to localize products, yes. right? Um, Netflix is, I think we were just having this mm. chat earlier, Netflix is a great product. I think yeah. no one can deny that. Um, but there are, there are markets, there are demographics in the Asian region that don't listen, don't, don't consume English mm. uh, language uh, products. So you need to localize it. You're not addressing, there are market needs out there, mm. which is something that I guess you've noticed before jumping into Nullery. Mm. Did you look at other areas of tech or other uh, possible ventures uh, before committing to the digital health and employee uh, well-being side of things? You know, I, I've been quite active in the um, tech scene. Uh, I started in being an angel investor in companies like Money Match that looks at, you know, remittance and fintech, you know, very differently, right? Much mm-hmm. more accessible. But I was very drawn to this part of healthcare, specifically because I, you know, caught up with some university friends in the Bay Area and they had built kind of like the, the Netflix version of what Nullery is today. And it resonated to me because behavioral health is the one part of health where localization really matters, right? If you're going to win over someone's trust, if you're going to help them with stress and pressure and changing behaviors, language not only matters, lifestyle matters. But the other very important part also in healthcare is payments. Mm. 
If you okay. cannot solve payments, which is very localized, it's not going to work. Healthcare payment infrastructure in the US is very different from the Europe, very different. Even Malaysia versus Singapore, different. Indonesia versus Thailand, different. You've got to be able to understand that to unlock it. Could you elaborate further on, I guess, that how that helped in terms of how you built Narita? Why was why is this payments focus so important? Well, again, right? A startup, very quickly, you've got to prove your viability. And the best way of proving that is people are willing to pay for your service. Mm-hmm. If they're not, you can have a great product. And maybe a good example is Clubhouse, right? <laughs> like we all used it. But then if you don't figure out how do you monetize it, yeah. it's not going to be sustainable in the long run, right? So understanding and unlocking payments is, is a big deal. So you're not talking about just the facilitation of that payment. You're mm. talking about actually people willing to take out their wallets mm. and fork out money for this particular yes. service. Mm. Um, what has... In the last few years, right, um, what was it that, I guess, there are a few other players mm-hmm. in the space. You've got, I spoke to Intellect a few, mm-hmm. uh, it was about a month or earlier this year. We, You've got uh, Thoughtful as well, also based in Singapore. You're based here. You mm-hmm. have a more behavioral aspect focus to what you're doing. What would you say is, I guess, the USP mm-hmm. or the elevator pitch uh, for Nullery? Sure. And, and maybe I'm going to wrap that around why I started Nullery, yeah, why please. I was drawn to it. Because I think a lot of people can relate to uh, a situation where a loved one, in my case, my father, died of diabetes and cancer. And when you realize the whole healthcare system was, number one, only focused on his physical health, chemotherapy, medication, surgery, radiotherapy. But these chronic conditions, which you go through over years... No one thought about or provided any support to the depression and anxiety that chronic disease patients go through. And when that's not supported, that would lead to skip chemo sessions, miss medications, and you know things progressively deteriorated. So number one, both that 1.0 model of physical hospitals or the 2.0 model of telehealth marketplaces lack they're very siloed by specialization Mm -hmm. and they don't understand the link between mental and physical health because there's a lot of links between diabetes and depression, heart disease and anxiety. The second challenge is they wait until people are sick and distressed and you got to go to them, right? But by then it's very costly and complicated and complex. What would it take to flip that model and say, hey, let's go out into populations. Let's do a lot of early health assessments. Find people who may seem normal, who are still working, but have early risk factors, right? Because their depression and anxiety is building up, their their blood pressure is going up, their blood sugar is going up. If we can help them there, we'll reduce the likelihood of more costly procedures like, you know, kidney failure or kind of, you know, heart diseases. And so that's what we wanted to imagine, a model where we could predict using data analytics and health assessments that are low cost to find people with early risk factors, help them with early behaviors to prevent those likely issues. Now, to also then be able to do it in a way that you demonstrate real improvements because the third problem with healthcare today is it's a simple fee-for-service model. Mm -hmm. Your doctor gets paid for the consultation or treatment irrespective of whether you actually get healthy, Mm -hmm. right? And in fact, suddenly you realize... There's a conflict of interest because I want you to see me more. I want you to continually be on medication because I benefit from it economically. Mm. 
right? And that frustrates people who have to pay for healthcare, whether it's the employers themselves or insurers or even governments. So what would it take, for example, to reimagine payments where instead of a transactional fee for service, that we can contain the cost in a fixed model, irrespective of usage? And the inspiration for this came from airline engine models. Elaborate, please. So you think about it, right? For, for an airline operator, uh, your engines are a massive part of your mm-hmm. cost. And if you use it and it breaks down, spare parts and maintenance can be very costly. Now, if you are the engine provider, the spare parts maintenance provider, actually, it's in your interest to have <laughs> it break down more often, right? So you can see the conflict of interest. Yeah. So what airlines and, and engine engineering and maintenance providers have done is to say, let's fix the cost. It's called power by the hour. I pay you a fixed rate for every hour that I use the engine. And with that, you've got to make sure this engine will last, it's taken care of, anything, you know, I'm more, I'll be more invested in predictive maintenance because I don't want expensive breakdowns to happen. So now you've aligned the incentive between the operator and the maintenance provider. We want to do the same thing with healthcare. Okay. Right? To move away from this fee-for-service model because, you know what, then the healthcare provider just keeps making, making more at mm. the expense of the people who have to pay for healthcare. So there's two things that we've learned in the last uh, 10 minutes so far. It's been, one is the question of how can we do it cheaper? That's been a narrative mm-hmm. here. But two, essentially prevention is better than cure. And yes. how do we figure out a payments system that incentivizes all parties towards that common goal. Uh, more to get into, Azran, which we'll do after a few messages. Folks, I'm speaking with Azran Osman Rani, the CEO and co-founder of Naluri, a Malaysian digital health and employee wellness startup. I'm Roshan Kanizan. We'll be back in just a bit here on Open for Business, so don't go anywhere. Keep it here to BFM 89.9, the business station. Open for Business will reopen in a few moments. Powered by Bospoli.com, Malaysia's first online company secretary. Backing feminist movements. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Open for Business is powered by Bospoli.com, Malaysia's first online company secretary. BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Open for Business. I'm Roshan Kanesan and this morning I'm speaking with Azran Osman Rani, the CEO and co-founder of Naluri, a Malaysian digital health and employee wellness startup. Um, Azran, earlier you walked us through, I guess, the journey, right, from uh, management consultant to corporate C-suite and now startup founder. Uh, A big part of that in your early days in AAX in particular was that you had to take accountability by having a stake in the company. So you had the upside and the downside as well. Um, Coming to Naluri here, Mm -hmm. earlier you talked a little bit about we essentially the boiling down to two points, right? Prevention is better than cure. And how can we make it cheaper? These Mm -hmm. seem to be the two the denominators, mm-hmm. uh, common denominators. When you look back at the journey, which started, I think, in 2017, um, what was the original problem that you saw and how mm-hmm. did you think you wanted to address that problem? Well, right up front, you know, I, I was very interested in this mental and physical health link. Mm. Uh, so I started working with a psychologist and we, number one, wanted to test the hypothesis that people were willing to reach out and speak to someone if you made it more accessible, right? And specifically, we created what I call my pre-MVP product, (laughs) right? It was very crude. It was literally, I posted on Facebook to say, hey, 
if you're going through stresses, pressures, you're feeling overwhelmed, would you like to reach out and have a chat with a psychologist just on WhatsApp? And over 50 people did. So number one, they were willing to speak up about it. And through that process, so instead of a formal one-to-one session over one hour, and then you only see them again in you know the next two to three weeks, we have an ongoing chat conversation. Mm. Because that meant the psychologist could have multiple conversations in parallel, right? It's a bit like chatting with your different friends. So suddenly your productivity improves. And then you discover that there are a lot of common um, parts of the conversations that you can deconstruct, either at a diagnostic level, right? So early on, the psychologist might want to ask, hey, Roshan, what are the stress triggers in your life, right? Is it money? Is it your relationships? Is it work? But what if we could then make it easier for people to provide that answer because we can codify it? And I didn't have any technology, so I had only one intern who wrote the text (laughs) on PowerPoint and did a screenshot and she would send it as an image on WhatsApp so that someone can reply B instead of having to type, right? And by doing that back and forth, you reduce the time of that human professional, the psychologist, who can then review your answers and come back to you in a more targeted manner. Or there's an education aspect, right? Hey, I might have high blood pressure. What does that mean, hypertension? If I've got to explain that to you, each individual it takes up a lot of my time. But I can now create simple little bite-sized lessons on what is hypertension and then send it to you via WhatsApp. So we started to learn how do you deconstruct the current offline process and find ways to make it much more efficient and convenient. And um, content is scalable, right, mm. in that sense. So if exactly. I've created one piece of content that addresses a thousand people's questions, now it becomes, I send you this link and you just take a listen exactly. to break it down. Exactly. Um, I like that you you called it a crude MVP. Yes. So what was pre-MVP. The, the pre-MVP? Yeah. What was the first MVP then of this? Okay, so we finally went live in 2018, right? And at that point... Actually, no one was really interested in employee mental health. Mm. But one of our very first clients, one of the large um, you know, oil and gas companies, had a real need with people with chronic diseases, diabetes, heart disease. Because when you become unhealthy and you cannot work on a refinery, on an offshore plant, the opportunity cost is really high. So they were very focused on, let's address this earlier. But they were intrigued that compared to previous models, a model where you embed psychological support to address moods, mindsets, motivations. How do you sustain someone's behavior change Mm -hmm. as opposed to just give them health or medical advice? And that's when they said, let's do a pilot, right? Let's say here's an office with 2,000 employees. You now have to create the marketing campaign to convince people to want to come to your event, to be screened, right? So that we have their blood test profile, they've got their mental health profile, and we'll pick 200 people with elevated risks, and then we'll measure, right, their their initial state, and then after four months, six months. And we demonstrated that, you know, about 57% of the, you know, 200 people out of 600 people whom we tested uh, achieved a clinically significant health improvement. Then they were like, wow, this is actually pretty good, right? And then next year we did, you know, an offshore um, area in Trunganu and, and uh, you know, a downstream plant in Sarawak. And, you know, the results were still, oh, 62, 67%. This, and you can now quantify what is the value, 
of improving health. And this is something none of the healthcare providers, not the hospitals, not the telehealth platforms have ever done, mm-hmm. right? If I can help you quantify and put a dollar value to your improvement, that's going to help you make better investment decisions, right? Yeah. Um, so that is also, I guess, how you kind of figured out that this would work, right? Mm-hmm. You you had these, your clients are the companies, right? Mm-hmm. And then they essentially like corporate uh, yeah. healthcare uh, insurance plans. So you then, you, you onboard the companies, they mm-hmm. get it for their employees. Is there a particular demographic that you're finding is particularly, uh, that particularly wants this uh, product? Sure. So first, it is not one product because you've got to tailor it mm-hmm. to different types of workers. Clearly, with respect to mental health, it is very skewed to the younger population, right? Sort of that 20 to 35 age group. And there are very structural or generational reasons why that population has doubled the rates of mental distress compared to the above 40 uh, workforce population. But that above 40 workforce population is also now where we're starting to see real issues with chronic disease risks much earlier than, you know, they're at the prevalence rate that you would expect them to be retirees, but they're mm-hmm. now getting it in their late 30s, early 40s. So it's a mm-hmm. real issue. And that means your healthcare cost exposure is going to balloon. But there's also then, if you understand the link, right, that means if we can help them when they're 20s and 30s, but with their depression and anxiety, it actually reduces the prevalence of hypertension and diabetes and heart diseases mm. as they get into their mid-30s and early 40s. So is the younger demographic the main use case, uh, uh, it, uh, it's, target market? It's, it's broad. So mm. um, for a lot of white-collar office workers, mm-hmm. banks, telcos, FMCG, it would be very skewed. I would say okay. 70-80% of the users are that 20 to 35 age group. But for a lot of the kind of industrial type uh, organizations, while they do want to provide that support for the younger population, there's a much bigger, higher priority issue to manage the health of that above 35, 40 to 50 age group. Like your, like your first client. Exactly. Mm. Yes. So there are different groups that need different yes. things. Yep. Um, and your, I guess the service you provide is catering to those different exactly. needs. Uh, Azran, when we come back after the news bulletin, I want to get into this, uh, where you see the differentiation between online and physical sure. uh, well-being, right? Because um, there are limitations to online. So how do you see, is it subsidiary? Is it a complementary mm. service? And how do you scale from there? Yes. Uh, folks, I'm speaking with Azran Osman Rani. He's the CEO and co-founder of Naluri, a Malaysian digital health and employee wellness startup. I'm Roshan Kanesan. You're listening to Open for Business. We will be back after the news bulletin. So keep it here to BFM 89.9, the business station. Open for Business will reopen in a few moments. Powered by BossBolle.com, Malaysia's first online company secretary. Best for money. BFM 89.9. Open for Business is powered by BossBolle.com, Malaysia's first online company secretary. BFM 89.9, welcome back to Open for Business. I'm Roshan Kanesan and this morning I'm speaking with Azran Osman Rani, the CEO and co-founder of Naluri, a Malaysian digital health and employee wellness startup. Uh, Azran, earlier we talked about why you got into this as well as the focus, right? Mm. And there's this big balance between wanting to make it affordable, providing accessibility and being able to focus on prevention Mm. as opposed to cure. Now, 
uh, a lot of what we talked about is basically is digital accessibility to mm. mental health care and employee wellness. Um, but with digital products, while accessibility is much better, um, the level of depth that you can go to with individuals mm. is lower. Mm. How do you see, I guess, finding a balance here? Do you see yourself as an earlier part of the pipeline and then flagging bigger concerns to for more niche focus? Or is there something else, another way you look at it? Yeah, so accessibility is a very good theme, right? Mm. I'll start even first with you have to be uh, versatile even on digital accessibility mm-hmm. because not only do you have to provide a mobile app, right? But there are some people who prefer laptops working at their office. I want a web version, just like how some people today are comfortable with the WhatsApp version on web, right? Mm-hmm. Blue-collar workers, people on on the field, they may want quick WhatsApp-type services. Whereas office workers, for example, I want to integrate it into Microsoft Teams to reduce the friction to get access to care. Now, but we also have clients that say, look, digital is important because it's quick accessibility. But you're right, there's some issues where I need to go deep. And so some clients have said, hey, look, either one day a week or one day every two weeks, I would like your team to come on site at my office, mm. right, to have full one-on-one face-to-face sessions. And one of the interesting things we learn is you got to be smart about it. Like you have to maybe be in a nearby building as opposed to in a meeting room in the office. Because if I've got to physically go into the meeting room, that might create some stigma. Mm. The and privacy then, element of it. For for example, I you know Tiffany and I work with C-suite executives, right? How do you really frame the the employee well-being and mental health agenda as part of you know performance and you know creating a performance culture with senior management and boards, right? And so you got to have sessions with them, both one-on-one, you know, almost like an executive coaching relationship, or with with management teams for them to understand this link. And so that requires a much more higher touch in-person model. So there is a balance to be had here. Oh, yeah. And do you see and you see yourself as being able to cater to that entire uh, pipeline? Well, what we deliberately stay out of, right, uh, for both kind of scale and, and liability reasons is we don't get involved in prescribing, mm. diagnosing and delivering medical you know, prescriptions, right? So for example, if it's a psychiatric disorder, that is something that we don't get involved with. We will refer people if they need help, right? But oftentimes people might have their physician. Uh, so yeah, that's the part of the business that we are not involved in. So focus on the well-being side of things, the prevention side of things, uh, helping people build habits, tapping mm-hmm. to their behaviors. Um, in terms of the business side mm-hmm. of things, uh, Azran, w- uh, could you give us a better sense in terms of where Nallery is mm-hmm. uh, today in terms of revenue and growth? Because it's, it's been a seven-year journey now. Sure. Where yeah. are you at today? So I guess, you know, in, in the last year, we, we continued to double revenues. We're probably mm-hmm. not about $4 million US dollars mm-hmm. uh, annually, um, where, you know, we went from one during 2021 to four. Uh, and we hope that that number kind of carries on closely to 2024 as well. But I think very importantly, last year in a in a tightening monetary environment, uh, there was a much clearer focus on you know getting to sustainable unit economics and mm. path to profitability. So we really hone in on cost of delivery, right? Where we've now created, or you know, essentially on a consolidated basis already, what what I call. Contribution margin three positive. So what that means is contribution margin one is your gross margin, the cost of your healthcare professionals, the cost of your blood tests or devices. So that's about a 75% margin. Then you have another 
25% of cost that involves with client management, right? Account management, data analytics, uh, you know, marketing programs to serve your clients, right? That takes your margin down to about 50%. And then if you add sales, marketing, right? Uh, commissions, etc. cetera, uh, for your team, uh, for your channel partners, that's about a 25% margin. So as a business, Malaysia today is profitable. Uh, in around April 2023, Singapore became profitable for us in about July, and Indonesia turned profitable in November. We still have a fourth market, Thailand, uh, that's still new. It just started last year. Um, and so we expect by the end of this year, right, towards the tail end of this year, we'll get to kind of an EBITDA break-even. Um, so, and growth going forward, you're expecting it to continue at this uh, current? Yeah, but that requires us to really pursue the business, I would say, in three ways. Mm-hmm. Number one, geographic expansion, right? So besides the four countries, uh, the, the, the most obvious ones are, for example, Philippines and Vietnam. And we've now shown that we can actually serve clients on a global level, right? We now have our first global clients where we support 13,000 employees in 26 countries, including nine countries in Africa, right? How do you do that at scale in a digital way? The second is how do you go from serving big enterprises to SMEs Mm. and even a retail proposition, right? So you got to tailor the product uh, to kind of expand your addressability because uh, in terms of the working population, SMEs comprise 80, 90% of the workforce, And third, of course, is expanding your therapeutic areas. So beyond depression, anxiety, stress, metabolic conditions like, you know, weight, blood pressure, blood sugar, cholesterol, um, you know, other areas like kind of chronic pain, right? Or, um, you know, kind of providing support for chronic kidney disease, irritable bowel syndrome allows us to broaden kind of the scope of support that we can provide our, uh, the members who use Nullary. So a, a key way, as you mentioned there, mm-hmm. for you to expand geographically is to mm-hmm. get bigger companies on board, right? Mm-hmm. So then you service all their cli- their employees. Uh, enterprise moving to smaller companies, mm-hmm. uh, SMEs, big part mm-hmm. of the population. Uh, you also mentioned retail, because right now you're mm-hmm. a very B2B product. Mm-hmm. You see B2C in the future? Yeah, so step one is actually not trying to do it ourselves, mm-hmm. but finding the right partners, right? There are a lot of partners today who have who build their health super apps, right? Like for example, you know, an insurance company might have 20 million members, right? And they're trying to bring people a lot onto their digital super apps, right? So can we provide, you know, both mental health, chronic disease management programs as part of that offering so that we become accessible uh, to the end user retail customer? And in terms of the therapeutic areas, that's, I guess, expanding your product offerings in order to mm-hmm. drive more revenue. Um, Azra, we've got to go into another, uh, the last break uh, before... Uh, we go to the next show. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk a bit more about funding. Mm-hmm. I think this is going to be a key conversation. You've raised, uh, you raised $5 million back in 2021. You raised $7 million back in 2022. Uh, I guess the question now is when you're going to raise your next round, which sure. we'll get into after a few mm-hmm. messages. Folks, I'm speaking with Azran Osman Rani, the CEO and co-founder of Nalluri, a Malaysian digital health and employee well-being startup. I'm Roshan Kanasin. This is Open for Business. Keep it here to BFM 89.9. The Business Station. Open for Business will reopen in a few moments. Powered by BossBully.com, Malaysia's first online company secretary. Breakfast for Masters, BFM 89.9. Open for Business is powered by BossBully.com, Malaysia's first online company secretary. 
BFM 89.9, welcome back to Open for Business. I'm Roshan Kanesan and this morning I'm speaking with Azran Osman Rani, the CEO and co-founder of Naluri, a Malaysian digital health and employee wellness startup. Uh, Azran, in 2022, June, Naluri raised a $7 million mm-hmm. pre-Series B funding round led by Proxa Group, which is a real estate, uh, real estate development group in Thailand, which is also involved in digital health tech and healthcare operations. I think through hospitals, if I'm not mistaken, uh, you also saw other key investors there, including Striders Corporation, which is a Japanese firm, and a German investment group, uh, sorry, Riddles conglomerate. Man. Yeah, um, talk to us a little bit about the the non-monetary value uh, that investors like this who almost act like strategic investors really mm-hmm. uh, what did they bring to the table yeah so first what we've learned is we've uh, you know in in the course of the multiple uh, funding rounds is to raise a diverse portfolio of investors mm-hmm. both strategic investors as well as financial investors venture capital funds and actually most of it over 90% of the institutional capital that we raised have been from overseas sources you know singapore japan new york uh, germany etc uh, thailand um, and and that's important on two two fronts right number one uh, you, we've seen everyone saw how 2023 in a tightening monetary environment a lot of the financial investors were on the sidelines and so you've got to rely on strategic investors to kind of help you in, in those periods. Strategic investors is also can be a double-edged sword, mm-hmm. right? Uh, some people worry about bringing them in too early, whether they have too much influence on your direction, right? Does it suit their business direction versus pure financial returns focus? But they can also be very helpful, especially with international expansion. And Proxa probably is a good example of helping us open up the Thai market which on our own would be very, very hard with a you know limited resource startup trying to get into a complex market, different language, culture, and kind of you know healthcare payment system without a, a you know kind of a powerful investor that can guide you to open up that market. There's the I guess the funding mix or the mm-hmm. investor mix in on your cap table indicate, I guess, priorities in terms of where you want to grow going forward. Mm-hmm. So you've got a, a German conglomerate, you've got a Japanese conglomerate as well. Are these potential markets that you're looking at? Uh, no, not, not at the moment. I think we're very Asia-focused. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot more we can do in, in Southeast Asia or even broadening uh, within Asia. So I don't think kind of Europe uh, would, would fare into our growth mm-hmm. programs. Um so Proxa allows you or is going to support your well help better help your mm. uh, your Thailand operations, which I think earlier we were talking we were talking about the profitable centers right mm-hmm. now. Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia have all reached mm-hmm. that Thailand is still growing for yes. you. Um, you know, you were talking about that balance, right? That mm. double edged sword. Uh, so from your experience then, how do you manage that? Because strategic partners are going to have uh, their own, I guess, business interests in the longer term. Mm. Uh, you have to be very closely aligned, yeah. I think, in order for that to yeah. work. So how did you do that? Yeah, so first, how you compose your board is really important, right? Mm. To have kind of, you have both, uh, we have strategic investors on our board, we also have financial investors on our board. What I've learned is you need a very strong independent chairperson. So we found ours in Dr. Chong Su Lin, who used to be the CEO of Prince Court, CEO of Sunway Medical, CEO of IMU Healthcare. And today she sits on the board of you know, one of the largest insurance companies in Malaysia. So she's got a very good perspective that gravitas and, and leadership can really help us manage uh, the strategic conversations, balancing the strategic and financial investors on our board. 
if anyone else is listening, I mean, I mean mm. people are listening. Uh, let me let me do it, just be sure. Um, to other people who are listening yes. here and they're considering strap brings a strap mm. partner on, mm. um, what would you tell them is important in when you're considering the different? I mean, sometimes you can't be picky uh, when it sure. comes to funding, especially in this environment. Yeah. What's in, what are the I guess important things to pay attention to with strap partners? Well, you know, first uh, understand their own business priorities. Can you, you know, really reconcile, uh, you know, kind of how you fit into their business versus, you know, what your core product is? In fact, a, another example of a strategic investor is Pathology Asia uh, in Singapore and regionally. So they're like a lab diagnostics company, right? And they started investing in us because they saw that while they may be good at, uh, you know, telling people, look, this is all your health risk from your blood test. What do you do about it, right? Mm. So Nellery can be an add-on. And we've also said, hey, we can now actually create value for you because we're going out into corporates. We're doing a lot of health screens. And, you, you know, before they were only primarily getting their source from doctors and hospitals who order blood tests. We're creating a completely new income stream for them, right? And they provide us with very low cost blood tests to be able to do very cost efficient early screenings that we wouldn't otherwise do with a pure arm's length third party provider. Um some of the investors you've mentioned here, all foreign funding mm-hmm. providers so far. Um, any Malaysian partners on the Look, capital? We, we have a, a, a few, right? There's uh, Dua Pharma um, Biotech, who, who've been a you know good supporter of us. Uh, you know, RHL, uh, one of the Pinjana funds, have have supported us. But it has been challenging mm. in in Malaysia, right? As I said, over ninety percent of the capital that we've raised is uh, is from overseas. I find that you know we have a real gap in the Malaysian tech ecosystem with respect to funding. We kind of cover that seed stage, you know, under five hundred thousand dollar checks, and then you've got this all these big growth investors, you know, the the glicks at the post ten million US dollar check size. But th- there's this middle series A, series B, kind of that one million to five ten million dollar check sizes is where we almost call it the death valley in Malaysia, <laughs> right? Where if you don't know how to raise money overseas, it's going to be really mm. tough. Have you seen the environment become, I guess, better over the last year, given the uh, last one, two years, given uh, how much we're seeing, I guess, the glicks being encouraged to lend a hand or or raise funds essentially for this space? Yeah, so no, we've not seen it mm. materially because I think, uh, you know, either that or we're just probably not good enough, right? Um, but... A lot of the conversations with them have been, you know, we want you to get to an EBITDA break-even perspective, get to a certain, you know, let's say, you know, 10 million US dollars of revenue mm. before it's big enough into their sphere. To be fair to them, right? Because when you're managing yeah. fund sizes, gigantic fund sizes, it, it doesn't make sense for them to invest in smaller uh, ticket sizes. And mm. that's why getting to the EBITDA break-even for 2024 is a huge priority for us. Last funding round, the pre-series B was in June 2022. Mm. We're now in 2024. Mm. Um, I, I'm sure you're raising funds. Sure. Uh, usual run rates are around, run raise about 18 to 24 yeah. months. Yeah. Um, how much money are you looking to raise in your next round? And I guess, are you tying it to any particular uh, ambitions? Yeah, so there's kind of two parts to this. Yeah. One, we're sort of wrapping up an internal round. So essentially the investors who came in in that 2022 round are extending mm. their kind of investment instrument to ensure that we get to that runway, right, in another 12 to 18 months to get to that full break-even. But that's also where you, you have to then start thinking, how then do you raise your next bigger growth round? How do you break through beyond Series B to get to that size, right, where you're now starting to raise 
growth capital, right, or private equity capital. And so you need a different set of metrics. And those people, you can't say, okay, I'm now EBITDA break even, now I go race. You got to build relationships 12, 18 months earlier. Mm-hmm. So that's why we have to do things in parallel, right? We've got to extend, like, kind of raise you know, a few million dollars more from, from the 2022 investors to give us that timeline. But at the same time, start the strategic conversations with the growth investors for, I would say, a 2025 much larger round. How much do you think you're going to need in order to take Nellery to where you see the next stages? Well, look, I think, uh, you know, at, at every stage, probably, you know, if we focus on what we have today to get to a break-even, that means we've proven that this is a viable economic model, mm-hmm. right? Then, you know, a kind of between a 10 to $20 million round allows us to really accelerate the three areas, the, the geographic expansion, SMEs and retail, and, you know, multiple more therapeutic areas so that, you know, your addressable market, you know, kind of goes, grows by integer multiples. Uh, Azran, what do you see as the most likely uh, exit for mm. this ki- uh, type of business, given especially that you have multiple strat- sizable mm. strat partners on the cap table? Uh the kind of the the M and A route is probably mo- more likely mm. because in digital health there are these global giants right who want to own end to end healthcare right whether they're Apple or Amazon or Samsung who want to own every health data that you have or the <laughs> big insurance giants right or the big telehealth operators. What we do in preventive behavioral health and mental health is to be really good at that sliver that we're focused on that we could probably be very valuable to people who want to kind of manage healthcare end-to-end. So I think it's a much more uh, realistic uh, option to look at that M&A option, probably, you know, post-2025. And essentially, there is uh, it, people who want to build out this larger portfolio. They have, a, let's say, a larger umbrella and they need mm. to cater to the area that you're particularly focused on. Yeah. Um, as we're coming to the end of the conversation, uh, as a practitioner, as some uh, business that focuses on this particular space, mental uh, and physical well-being, especially for employees, uh, what are you watching for in particular this year in terms of the the business trends that you're looking to? Tap sure. Into? So, so maybe my my last thought on that is, of course, 2024 is going to be a lot more about performance accountability you know, bottom line focus, you know, and, and I think for healthcare providers, it becomes more important for us to demonstrate that, you know, what is it, what's the economic value and to organizational performance of improving employee mental health, right? How does that translate into savings from reduced absenteeism and presenteeism, medical claims costs? Uh, and that's going to become a much bigger agenda item uh, for 2024. Azran, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me, Roshan. Folks, I've been speaking with Asran Osman Rani, the CEO and co-founder of Naluri, a Malaysian digital health and employee well-being startup. I'm Roshan Kainasan. You've been listening to Open for Business. Up next, we've got Resource Center. So keep it here to BFM 89.9, the business station. Are you open for business? Register your company with BossBalay.com, Malaysia's first online company secretary. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.